1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Neil Ferguson has written a new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. I would ordinarily read anything Neil Ferguson writes. He's one of the world's eminent historians. He's at the Hoover Institution at Stanford now. But I especially wanted to read Doom. And in fact, I inhaled it this weekend. It is riveting. Neil Ferguson joins me this morning. Congratulations, Neil. This is a remarkable book.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Hugh. It's a huge pleasure to be with you.
1: Now, we are talking on May 10th, uh, for the benefit of those who listen to the interview with Hugh Hewitt a couple of years from now. There are 32.5 million cases of COVID in the United States and 578,000 deaths. 58% of Americans are vaccinated adults. Pfizer just approved their vaccine for 12 plus. Worldwide, there are 159 million people who have been infected. 3.3 million reported deaths on May 11th of 2021. Brazil, though, has 422,000 dead. India, 246,000 dead. They are surging. uh, With 34 million vaccinated in India, that is only 2.5% of the population. Brazil has 7.27% vaccinated. You finished doom In August or September, you might've made some edits in November and December, but are you feeling the same way about COVID at the end of, uh, in the middle of May, 2021, as you did in the fall of 2020, when you finished Doom?
0: That's a very fair question, Hugh. I knew I was writing about an historical event that wasn't yet over. And I knew that, uh, if it was anything like past pandemics, there would likely be further waves uh, of infection, illness, and death. Uh, I just didn't know how big they would be or or where they would be. We knew that the virus had a greater capacity to mutate than we had originally thought back in in 2020. So when I was writing the final uh, version, which uh, I think I signed off on it sometime before Thanksgiving, I... I imagined two scenarios, uh, one benign scenario in which uh, the worst was behind us, uh, and one uh, nightmare scenario in which, uh, in fact, the pandemic would go on for much longer. And we ended we ended up with a funny mix of these, because on the one side, the vaccines turned out to be even better than I'd anticipated. The efficacy for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna ones in particular, were off the charts, much higher than I had dared to hope for. Uh, and I think also that countries that had done badly in 2020, including the United States, turned out to do really well in, in rolling out these vaccines that they developed. So that was the that part of the optimistic scenario came true. Uh, on the other hand, I think virus mutation and the failures in countries like uh, Brazil and India have made the further waves uh, even bigger than I had, had feared. So I think we've ended up with a kind of middle range outcome in which success has been greater than I had foreseen uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., but failure has been greater than I'd foreseen in in India and Brazil.
1: Now, uh, Neil Ferguson, I asked Dr. Francis Collin of the NIH last week on this show in this podcast, uh, what was the greatest danger and was it, in fact, uh, a variant of the virus that eluded vaccines? He said, yes, indeed it is, and there's one in India that concerns him it is possible that this is a black dragon. Uh, and, and you need to explain to people your, your zoology of disaster, if you will, the gray rhino and the black swan and the black dragon, uh, uh, the great dragon, the grand dragon, what dragon king, I believe it is. What is yeah, this dragon, now? Dragon
0: king is right, Hugh. Th- th- this is a, a set of terms that I think your listeners might find useful. A gray rhino is a disaster you see coming from miles away, trundling across the savannah towards you with its its horn pointed at you. And in many ways, COVID was that because uh, any number of experts and non-experts had predicted a, a major pandemic. Black swan is something that when it strikes you seems completely impossible and, and you couldn't possibly have foreseen it. This is Nassim Taleb's term. And what was strange about COVID was that when it struck, it went from being a gray rhino that everybody had seen coming to be something completely unexpected that we were shocked shocked by and that's a quirk of human psychology that somehow we told ourselves we saw this coming but when it struck we acted all surprised the third category which is the dragon king category is is rare and huge in other words this is the kind of thing that has massive historical consequences that go far beyond the body count and a good example of this is, is World War I, which was a really big war, but its consequences extended far beyond the, the 10 million plus men who died in battle. So I think when you look at COVID and ask, you know, which is it? It's kind of all three. It started off as a gray rhino. And when it struck, we acted all surprised like it was a black swan. And now I think it has the potential to be one of those Dragon King events that fundamentally changed the course of history beyond the, the number of people who actually die in the immediate disaster. I think it's right to worry about variants that can uh, elude or, or be vaccine resistant. We already kind of see the problem in countries like Chile that have vaccinated a lot of people, uh, but they use the Chinese vaccines to a large extent, and those have much lower efficacy. And the variant that cropped up in uh, Brazil, P1, turns out not to be very, Uh, responsive uh, and to be very transmissible. I think one shouldn't imagine a nightmare mutant that is simultaneously much more transmissible and much more deadly, because that's unlikely. Uh, The more deadly a virus is, the less transmissible uh, it is. That's the lesson of SARS and MERS, which were much more deadly viruses, but precisely for that reason, didn't spread very far. I'm quite an optimist about mRNA technology. I think that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are quite readily tweakable and I think we'll be able to cope in the developed world uh, with anything the virus comes up with in the coming years. I think the problem is just scaling those vaccines so that they're globally available and we're a long way from that. Uh, So yeah, I don't think, I never thought it was just going to go away uh, like magic because influenza didn't do that. And you can end up quite, I think, imaginably with a scenario in which COVID comes back on annually uh, with varying degrees of uh, severity uh, at different uh, times of the year, but most likely in, in, cold, in cold weather. Like we, can, we could probably be getting a COVID shot uh, each year uh, for the rest of our lives. That's an imaginable scenario, but it's not exactly like influenza. The interesting thing about SARS-CoV-2 is it, it needs super spreaders really to get traction. And I think the big un, unknown is at what point does a population have sufficient immunity that the virus just can't get uh, get escape velocity? And we might find out, we'll see in the, in the coming months, that in fact you can get to so-called herd immunity a little bit more easily with a super spreader virus like this. As I said, we're oh, still... Interesting far from the end of the story. So there's a lot
1: that we still don't know. know, Neil, I'm a bit of a Cassandra, uh, as you describe them in the books. In fact, and I'll be immodest here and I will embarrass you, if there was a Pulitzer for reporting on the risk of the pandemic in December, January, and February, there would only be two people in that category, you and me. You wrote uh, (laughs) remarkably alarmingly about it. And my audience actually accused me of being a Cassandra in January because I was watching the news and I know O'Brien and Pottinger And I and I had served on a health board in Orange County when H5N1 came along. And when H1N1 came along, and I know, and I'd read the Great Influenza and the Ghost Map. You were aware, I think, because you're a historian. And I think that's the value of doom, the politics of catastrophe, is we can get enough people to read this. They won't ignore Cassandras when those Cassandras are credentialed.
0: Well, I do think that if you knew some history, uh, even relatively recent history, you could see quite quickly that something badly wrong had happened in Wuhan. And I, I remember getting an email about it in something like January the third, and my antennae just went, "Ting, this is this is potentially very bad." Uh, particularly because it's it's hard to believe Chinese officials when they say no, no, there's no human-to-human transmission. I think my default setting was when a communist regime is saying things like that, you should be very suspicious. So I think it wasn't too difficult if you had studied past pandemics to see the warning signs. Of course, the problem with being a Cassandra is that you can predict nine out of the last three catastrophes and (laughs) and you can't (laughs) have alarms. You know, think think of swine flu 2009 um, or Ebola when some very eminent uh, writers and, and epidemiologists thought that many, many more people would die and that the disease would spread much further than it, it did. So the, the difficulty with being a Cassandra is you mustn't cry wolf too often. And I've I, I, I learned that the hard way over the years. I mean, I, I think I was reasonably prescient about the financial crisis, for example. Uh, but actually, um, the, the journalism I did from 2006 to 2008 about that which ultimately produced the book a sense of money i didn't get that much attention uh whereas people who'd been predicting a disaster for the past sort of 10 years uh were finally uh the successful doctor dooms so we can't rely on cassandra's because there are too many of them and every day of the week there's somebody i can introduce you to who will predict uh, that climate change will destroy the planet uh or, or that uh, some other form of, of disaster will strike. The trick, I think, is not to try to predict uh, catastrophe before it happens, because that's impossible. I mean, the probabilities just are incalculable. Who knows when the next really big earthquake will strike California? We don't, we don't know. And we don't know if there's going to be some massive increase in volcanic or solar activity. We can't attach probabilities to those things. The, qu- the key is to be quick to respond. But epidemiologist Larry Brilliant said a smart thing uh, many years ago. He said the key with a pandemic is early detection and early action. In other words, you have to be quick on your feet. And we were not quick on our feet in January 2020, even when it was obvious that a pandemic was was underway and had begun in China. And I think that's the great great failure that we need to look back on and understand because we do not want to be flat-footed and slow off the mark when the next disaster strikes. You have to be
1: quick. Uh, Neil Ferguson, when I, I encountered Doom, I did something I don't remember ever doing before. I divided the book by reading the publisher's copy, the first half, and then buying myself the audio book so that I could listen. I, I walk a great deal, and I had to. I only had ninety-six hours to get read, ready for this, and I dive in. So I listened. To the second you recorded the audio book, didn't you? I did. I, I wanted to do this one myself. I, I, I didn't know that until I heard you talking. Your voice is exa- It's very well done, and I thought the accent was unusual for a reader, but it's you.
0: It's me, yes. I, this is a book that is very personal, in, in, in addition to being, I think, the first general history of disaster ever written. I think my relationship to doom... Uh, goes back to a, a Scottish childhood. Uh, maybe we're brought up to worry about the worst-case scenarios in Scotland more than uh, is entirely normal in the United States. So I wanted to narrate the book myself because I, I felt as if I had a very intimate connection to this this material. And although it could have got an actor to do this, and probably the actor would have done it better in some ways, it's quite a personal book. And I, I think as we all are confronted in our lives... Several times, usually, by major disasters and always by at least one minor disaster, it's quite a a personal subject. Even although the issues I'm talking about, pandemics, wars, uh, these things are vast in their scope, but each individual who's affected by a disaster uh, suddenly realizes that life is very precarious, that, that life can be shortened abruptly and without warning.
1: Yeah but you quote Adam Smith and I don't have it in my notes so I have to do this from memory a very elegant passage in which he says the civilized man will mourn those who die far away for an appropriate period of time and then will worry more about you know a cut in his finger and that doom is a is a good stop against that because of the the butterfly effect which you all the Lorenz butterfly we don't know what that disaster is going to do to us. We don't know what the Indian subcontinent's agony right now is going to do to us, and that's one of the messages of doom.
0: That's right. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, said John Donne. I mean, Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiment says, isn't it strange that I could find out that a million people have died in in a vast disaster in China, and I just won't really be that moved by it because it's far away and I don't know them. This, this is another version of uh, the, the saying attributed to Stalin, that one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. We don't easily relate to this death. And the bigger the numbers, the more our minds kind of reel. Whereas, of course, the sight of one of our children falling and hurting uh, his leg uh, is intensely painful to us. So this is one of the human predicaments, that we we are much more sensitive to proximate uh, pain and to the 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 sufferings of those, those who are close to us physically and, and in terms of, of relationship. And yet as a species, we have never been so connected as we are today. And so a disaster in China in uh, late 2019 turned into a global disaster. And it was really hard. And you'll remember this, Hugh, from your own experience. In January and February and early March, it was really hard to persuade Americans that this thing was inexorably coming to America because the flights had been landing from Wuhan in JFK and SFO for weeks uh, during the period when the virus had been spreading in China. The idea that it wasn't here in really large numbers was total fantasy. And yet people clung to it because they couldn't imagine that this really would be the cause of more than half a million deaths in the United States. And even I underestimated how many people would fall victim uh, to the virus. I, I think I remember Back in March or April, uh, talking to Larry Summers, and he said, well, how many do you think will will actually die by the end of the year? And I said, well, I don't know, 250,000 in the United States, but it's been almost double that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we struggle to imagine a pandemic, even although history is screaming at us, this stuff happens. And it happened as recently as 1957, 58, when we last had an influenza pandemic of a comparable scale. Uh, to COVID-19. It's an event that's largely forgotten today, but I found it fascinating to write the history of that particular pandemic.
1: The validation of your theory that we were unprepared is best, I think, displayed. After I finished Doom, I went back and looked up the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th Democratic Party debates, which were held between January 15th and February 25th of last year. There was barely a mention of COVID until the 11th debate on March 15th. That debate was primarily focused on the pandemic in that it spent an entire 17 minutes of two hours on the pandemic. So our greatest media outlets confronting the people who would be president, one of whom would become president, spent less than 20 minutes in five debates on the pandemic through the first quarter of the year of 2020. Neil Ferguson, that underscores how terrible the failure was at every level in every institution in America.
0: Yeah, I think it was far too easy as 2020 wore on to say this is all Trump's fault. And I lost count of the number of articles I read that made that argument. Uh, Jim Fallows had one in The Atlantic which said, the president is essentially the pilot of the nation just as I'm the pilot of the plane that I've learned to fly in. So if there's a disaster, it's all on him. by the way, being the president of the United States is not like flying a light aircraft, Jim. I mean, it's really not like that. In reality, you're presiding over a vast number of government agencies, uh, dozens and dozens, including ones that have a specific role, which is pandemic preparedness. And those institutions, I'm thinking here of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Department of Health and Human Services, they failed. I mean, they failed at that crucial job that they had which was to have an effective pandemic preparedness plan. They had a plan. It just didn't work. I mean, they actually had dozens of plans. Uh, I read some of them. Uh, The agencies were very good at producing 36-page pandemic preparedness plans. It's just that none of them actually worked when a pandemic struck. And then you go on and ask, well, what about the media? Um, Media coverage has been extraordinarily poor, not least because... Uh, so many parts of the media could not resist politicizing a public health crisis. And a good illustration of this is what happened in January when Donald Trump quite reasonably said we should stop people coming into the country from China. The only thing wrong with this was that it was about two weeks too late, but it was instinctively instinctively the right thing to do. And he was slammed in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and on Vox and no doubt on CNN uh, for being a racist. Uh, and for much of January and February, the line in the liberal media was that Trump people are overreacting. This is no worse than seasonal influenza. It was only later in the year that they flipped to Trump is responsible for uh, all the deaths. And I think if we if we tell ourselves that it would have been different if someone else had been president, whether Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or for that matter, Barack Obama, if we tell ourselves that that's what went wrong we will not understand why the failure was so bad last year. And we will just have another such failure when the next disaster comes along.
1: And that is, I mean, one of the many benefits of doom is everybody is guilty and everybody is innocent uh, because to a certain extent, the pandemic is going to pandemic on us. And in fact, I want to go back to the vaccine not being able to stop the variant. Your chapter on network theory is very useful because I was struck at the end of it the network is still in place for travel, and we're connected to a degree we, are, we cannot disconnect. But the network of refrigerated capacity to store the mRNA vaccine is not the same as the network for contact. In fact, it's, very, it's, a, it's a tiny fraction of the network for contact. That's why I'm worried, Neil, because of your chapter on network history.
0: Well, this is one of the most important insights I've had in the last few years. My last book, The Square and the Tower, was an attempt to explain network science to historians and the the general public because I think that until we understand that we are a networked species and we've never been more networked, we will underestimate the dangers of contagion. And I don't just mean contagion caused by viruses uh, or other pathogens. I'm talking also about the contagions of the mind that can spread through the internet uh, at an unprecedented speed and on an unprecedented scale. Part of what made last year so difficult was the number of crazy ideas that were circulating online about the virus, about possible remedies for COVID, and then, of course, about, about the vaccines. So we have to recognize that although we understand the science of a virus much better than we ever did before, I mean, viruses were not well understood until relatively recently. It was only in the 20th century that we really began to understand what they were and how to deal with them. Although we understand that stuff better, we're more vulnerable than we ever were before because of the huge volumes of of passenger traffic that that go over enormous distances. And although that was interrupted temporarily uh, last year, uh, it is gradually being restored. And I think the reality is that will remain extraordinarily vulnerable to new pathogens, no matter how well we understand the pathogens. Because in the end, a pandemic or a contagion is is only half about the pathogen. It's only half about the thing that goes viral. It's also about the social network that it attacks. And we've never been more vulnerable to to contagion than than we are in the early 21st century.
1: And our defense, which is a deeply refrigerated mRNA vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, is not that difficult, is no defense, because we aren't networked in capacity to distribute and apply those vaccines in parts of the world which will be ravaged and are being ravaged as we speak, uh, producing additional variants, one of which might come back to the United States. I'm really quite the Cassandra on this. Let me go back now to the the reason I, I think that doom is so important on a second level is you do deal with the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC quite unexpectedly, by the way. I did not think we would go there at the end of your book. And I read this very morning on the radio show to Admiral Stavridis, your friend, and he said to say hi, and he said to thank you again for your kind words about 2034. But a great uh, man. he is a great man. I am on every week to talk about geopolitics because he's a diplomat, a warrior, and a scholar, and also a good interview. But his he and I are both concerned about what you record at page 357, the Kissinger School Conference featuring Eric Schmidt and a cast of, of of five other academics, none of whom want to indulge in the theory that we're in a second Cold War. Well, we are. And you are one of the people, like every member of the Nixon seminar, Pompeo O'Brien and the 15 young national security experts that the foundation gathers every month, we understand it. You understand it. I understand it. Doom spells it out. But boy, it's difficult to get American elites to understand that, to quote you, the Chinese Communist Party is not Samsung. They don't want to be frenemies. Right.
0: And I, I mean, I have a good deal of respect for some of the people I quote in the book. But the idea that, that we can have coopetition, which is one of those awful made-up words that, that come out of international relations debates, is a delusion. The Chinese know that they're in Cold War II, and they've been in it for some time. For me, there was an epiphany when I was first thinking about this back in 2017, 2018, and and talking about it. And I gave gave a speech at the European conference saying, hey, we're in Cold War II. And I expected one of the Chinese delegates who was on after me to disagree, and he didn't. And I said to him afterwards, uh, I was kind of surprised that you didn't take issue with what I said, because I thought it was quite controversial. And he said, the reason I didn't is that I agree with you. And then I began to realize that the Chinese have been in Cold War II for some years now, that Xi Jinping has been steering China towards a Cold War strategy for at least five and and maybe closer to eight years. And we have been in la-la land. We have essentially told ourselves a succession of stories. Uh, beginning with, if we bring them into the World Trade Organization, they'll become a democracy, which was the the great fantasy of of around 2001, and and continuing with what I called Chimerica, which was, uh, if we have enough economic interdependence, uh, what could possibly go wrong? And meanwhile, uh, the Chinese have pursued conventional geopolitical expansion in the South China Sea, uh, increasingly aggressive policies towards near neighbors, including allies such as Australia espionage, uh, traditional and uh, an online espionage in pursuit of not just intellectual property but things that are of incredible national security importance. And and this is the thing that I that, that I talk about in Doom. They have built the ultimate totalitarian state in China, with surveillance capacities and capacities for social control undreamt of by George Orwell in 1984. And Ultimately, I think the totalitarian regime is the biggest danger, the biggest source of future disaster that we should be worrying about. Because let's face it, Hugh, in the 20th century, the principal cause of excess or premature death was totalitarian regimes, the policies they pursued and the wars that they started. So I think we need to wake up. The only consolation I have is that in the early Cold War, Americans were also sleepwalking. I mean, when George Orwell first used the phrase Cold War, which was in 1945, the American response was, what, seriously? People expected the wartime relationship with Stalin to continue. and It wasn't really until 1950, when the Korean War broke out, that Americans realized that the Soviet Union was for real as a strategic enemy.
1: Yeah, but Neil, one of the warnings you lay out, almost as an aside in Doom, is that The Chinese Communist Party is far better at disinformation and sowing discord in the United States than the Soviets ever got to be. And their foreign influence operation, which you did not put into doom, which you probably can't know of because of classification, is far greater than the Soviets ever aspired to. And I was part of that in the 80s. I know what they did. They're just they're better totalitarians than the Soviet Union's ever expected to be. That's right. There's a couple of reasons
0: for that, Hugh. I think one is that we're just much more open to all kinds of influence operations. I mean, there are several hundred thousand Chinese students in U.S. colleges, or there were until the pandemic struck, uh, an enormous number of of Chinese citizens in in the United States in various different economic uh, capacities. I mean, Back in the Cold War, in Cold War I, you could kind of know where the Soviet c- citizens were in the United States because they were mostly spies, uh, and only really in the later stages of the Cold War were there quite small academic exchange programs. So we are more penetrable. I think the other thing that's different is that the Russians under Vladimir Putin really developed a theory of information warfare that was novel, and exploited those vulnerabilities. And I would say what has happened in the last four or five years is that the Russians have taught the Chinese how this is done. And the Chinese yes. are, are learning from, from Moscow how to do info wars. They're not quite as good as the Russians because they struggle to sound plausibly Western, whereas the Russians know exactly how to sound like Americans when they go into social media. Whereas the Chinese come off in this rather shrill way that we associate with wolf warrior diplomacy. Still, I think they've learned a lot from the Russian playbook. And I think between information warfare and cyber warfare, we now face a very formidable threat. Because let's face it, China and Russia now work pretty much as a tag team against the United States.
1: So now I want to raise the biggest concern after reading Doom. It appears that the PRC has poisoned the world, covered it up, it even spread lies about the origin story, as you, as you detail. I knew, I actually heard them, that the U.S. Army introduced the virus originally. And yet the Chinese Communist Party has escaped any obvious blowback or significant cost. So my worry is that which gets rewarded gets repeated. Why wouldn't the Chinese Communist Party do it again? Well, this
0: is a key question. I mean, first of all, you have to admire one of the things that the Chinese did to uh, cover their asses. I don't think many people in the West believed the story that the Chinese foreign ministry put out, that actually the virus didn't originate in Wuhan. It was brought to Wuhan by an American military sports team. If anybody outside of China believes that, I'd be truly amazed. But what they've been cleverly doing is making sure that the business opportunities in China have continued to be there as glittering prizes uh, for Wall Street and indeed for Main Street. And whether it's uh, the big banks getting into the Chinese bond market or Tesla getting into the Chinese automobile market, there's never been a moment in the last year and a half when China has not remained open for Western business. And they've actually made it easier uh, to, to invest in China. You can get your money into China more easily than ever. Uh, getting it out is another matter, I should say, but you can certainly get it in. So they've been quite clever in making sure that there still is a China lobby uh, in Washington and, and in New York. Uh, and that's one reason why I think uh, there is a kind of, uh, there's still a restraint uh, on policy makers uh, even although there's an obvious continuity from Trump to Biden in China policy and much greater continuity than most people expected, I just still sense that there's, that there's, there's that the gloves are still on because of this economic uh, dimension. But let me just to, to address your question about what they do next. Let me draw your and your listeners attention to a story that just was published in The Australian uh, by Shari Markson. Uh, uh, Chinese military scientists discussed the weaponization of SARS coronaviruses five years before the COVID-19 pandemic. She has come across a Chinese paper with the interesting title, The Unnatural Origin of SARS and New Species of Man-Made Viruses as Genetic Bioweapons. This paper argues that the aim of strategy of biowarfare should be, quote, to cause the enemy's medical system to collapse. Now. I don't think, uh, at least I, I'm pretty uh, sure I don't think, that this virus was engineered. The, the consensus in the scientific community is that it, it's a natural evolved or mutated... That, that is changing virus. a bit, Neil, isn't it? That is changing I, a bit. Gain-of-function research, yeah. That's why I qualified this carefully, because I, I sense that this is a rapidly moving uh, field of research. But what is more and more clear uh, is that this thing originated with a lab leak uh, and not from a so-called wet market? So I, I I think there's more and more evidence that China has, as part of its Cold War strategy, just like the Soviet Union, a significant biological warfare program. And the Soviets did this. I talk about it in Doom. To an enormous extent, they violated their commitments not to do. Or prepare to do biological warfare, uh, and on a massive, terrifying scale. So it's Cold War II, surprise, surprise, not only are the Chinese ramping up all their other uh, national security capabilities, uh, but they're, they're investing in an offensive biological capability, and we should face that. So I must say, I find the Australian story absolutely uh, fascinating, and I'm only surprised it's not getting wider coverage in the U.S.
1: Well, now it will. The one thing I think my audience especially will appreciate is while you're very hard on President Trump and accurately relaying all of his mistakes, you also compliment him for his China policy. There was a series of six speeches in 22, 2020, two by the vice president, one by the attorney general Barr, one by FBI Director Ray, one by National Security Advisor O'Brien, and then Secretary of State Pompeo With the Nixon Library put the cherry on it trying to realign American foreign policy towards conservative realism about China. I am curious, do you think we're going to end up where we were in the late Cold War with the Democrats denying that Reagan was about a smart policy, you know, the nuclear freeze and all that, and the Republicans being serious cold warriors? I don't know,
0: Hugh, because in some ways the Democrats very smartly outflank Donald Trump on China last year. I think if he'd been left to his own devices, Joe Biden would have continued to say they're not bad folks, folks, which he very unwisely said early on in his campaign. But his minders got to him and said, dude, you have to be as hawkish on China or even more hawkish than Trump if you want to win this. And so they changed their strategy uh, electorally to, to being tougher on China than Trump. And uh, and that, I think, was smart, but it, it left them with a commitment to a tough policy that they then had to follow through on. And to give uh, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan their due, as well as Kurt Campbell, who's obviously driving this uh, at state, they all learned some pretty important lessons from the Obama years. I mean, many of them were mugged by reality by Xi Jinping. And I think they are tougher, a lot tougher on China than they were back in the Obama administration. But here's the the question. Are they gonna go beyond talking the talk, and they certainly talked the talk at Anchorage in their meetings with their counterparts from China, to actually walking the walk? And we'll find out, because at some point, it's gonna be showdown time, probably over Taiwan. There could be some other issue. And I think we'll find out if this administration is really willing to stand up to China Whether, like the Obama administration, when it comes to the crunch, as we saw with Ukraine and indeed with Syrian chemical weapons, when it comes to the crunch, they fold. And my concern is that we are talking ourselves into a Taiwan Strait crisis, but if it blows up next year, maybe after the Winter Olympics, just as the crisis in Ukraine blew up after the Sochi Winter Olympics, my feeling is they'll blink. Because it's a midterm year and the economy will be going gangbusters. Everybody knows that if you had a showdown with the Chinese, uh, it would be extremely bad for markets and the economy. So my bet is that after talking the talk, they won't walk the walk. And then we'll be back to the Cold War debates that we all remember, at least the older folks on, on the show remember, in the 1970s when detente became... Uh, the mantra of people who'd been against Vietnam and and wanted to kind of take the heat, uh, if that's not the wrong term, out of the Cold War. And Reagan came uh, to the fore in national politics with his critique of Dessert, saying, no, we have to stand up to the Soviet Union. We have to do it on our own terms. So I could imagine us getting there, but it'll only be after the Democrats have made a a major mistake in their China policy. And, And so far, so far they haven't. So far I've actually been impressed by how willing they've been to continue the Trump policy, even on trade, which I don't think they particularly believe in. But they've they've certainly stood uh, pretty tough on uh, a range of issues, including, for example, uh, support for Australia, which has been under intense economic pressure from China, Uh, criticism of the Chinese government's policy in Xinjiang towards the Uyghurs, using the word genocide in their criticisms. I mean, all of this is a great deal more than uh, one had, uh, had hoped for last year.
1: I agree with that. And I, in fact, I agree with every part of your analysis with one proviso. I think Jake Sullivan and and Secretary Blinken were taken aback by the Wang tirade in Anchorage. But Kirk Campbell told the Financial Times last week that we have to remain wedded to strategic ambiguity, which is the blink begun. I want, I want to move to two big questions before I throw the chum in the water for readers, which I want to do. There's always a way to do an interview that makes readers run out and get doom, and I'll, I'll do that in a second. And it's by highlighting interesting things that they did not know that they will learn by doom, which is so much. But two big questions. In the United States, we had the election of 2000 in the Florida fiasco, 9-11, Katrina the Obama revolution, the red line walk back, Syrian genocide, the scare of ISIS, the Crimean invasion, which you just referred to, the shock of 2016, two impeachments, and now a pandemic. I wonder, do we have PTS as a society? In other words, right now, social media adds to that, in, to borrow from P.J. O'Rourke, like giving a teenage boy a fifth of Jack Daniels and the key to a Porsche. We have put all that into 20 years. Are we flat on our back? You talk about the fragility of empires. Are we down for the count and don't realize it? I do think that if one looks
0: back over the Cold War period as a whole, we have reeled from one disaster to another, handling them pretty poorly. And indeed, one could say each time we've, we've done worse. I'll, I'll just throw out a few examples. It's hard to look back and say that our response to 9-11 was proportionate and successful. Uh, In fact, we embarked on two major military uh, 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 expeditions to Afghanistan and Iraq, and ultimately they did not end in uh, unalloyed success. We uh, had a financial crisis that uh, not only caused a huge short-term shock, but produced a near decade of, of economic stagnation, and now covid so one of the themes of doom is, well, why, why are we not so good at handling these crises as I think we used to be? Because my sense is that if you take us back to the 1950s, the time of Truman and Eisenhower, the United States, when it was hit by a crisis, whether it was a, a geopolitical crisis like the invasion of South Korea or a public health crisis like the Asian flu of 1957, uh, we responded pretty nimbly and pretty effectively. And so part of the book's argument is that we we've deteriorated or degenerated, uh, not so much as a people. I think we're still in in pretty good shape as a people. Uh, but I think we we've got a federal government that is is pretty dysfunctional. This is this administrative state that has evolved and, and grown inexorably since the 1970s, only briefly checked by Ronald Reagan's presidency, which is very very good at generating 36-page reports and. Uh, 100-slide PowerPoint decks, for example, on pandemic preparedness, or in 2007 on financial regulation. It's just that these things don't work when the rubber hits the road and you actually have a crisis. So I think we have a problem of dysfunctional bureaucracy, and I'm afraid the Biden administration is about to make it worse, by expanding the scope of the federal government even further. So that's a very important theme of the book. And the second point I'd make is that the United States, from the vantage point of pretty much everybody else in the world, is one of the world's great empires, even though it doesn't like to think of itself that way. And like all great empires, it's beginning to show signs of, of overstretch. Uh, the debt uh, is a pretty good example of that. Uh, but there are other signs of overstretch too. You know, The commitments were spread pretty thin, Globally, and uh, we've come to rely rather heavily on the rest of the world's readiness to take our dollars and our dollar denominated bonds. And so, the analogy that I I draw, and I've drawn it before, is with Britain in the mid 20th century. There comes a moment uh, in any empire's history when it's suddenly challenged. And if it doesn't rise to the challenge, it's exposed. And this is, of course, what happened to Britain with the Suez Crisis, and my worry is that you can have a kind of Suez Crisis-like experience if we have a showdown over Taiwan, and the US blinks, and that will be the moment that everybody says, oh, wait a second, Uh, the United States isn't actually the dominant power anymore, China is, and that changes everything, not only in the Indo-Pacific region, it, it changes everything globally.
1: Uh, you, one of the great melodies in the background of doom is that of government sclerosis on scale and that the inability to find and execute, you obviously admire Eisenhower a lot for his response, 57 and 58, and more generally for his ability to execute what he decided. My big four square box, uh, Neil, is is presidents have advisors. They are either wise or foolish, and they are either consulted frequently or infrequently and because the government is so vast, when a pandemic arrives, a president isn't going to know about a pandemic. He's going to have to rely on his advisors. And Trump had four or five different sets of them. Uh, I imagine Xi Jinping has the same problem on every issue. They also have government sclerosis, don't they? Isn't that what we ultimately have to hope is that communists are bad at government?
0: That's right. And one of the things that we mustn't do is overestimate the other side, which we did a lot in the first Cold War. We were always telling ourselves the Soviet economy was going to overtake that of the United States. That was in the standard macroeconomics textbook uh, that Paul Samuelson wrote until the 1980s. There was a chart that projected the Soviet gross national product, exceeding that of the United States. So we mustn't make that mistake again. China has all kinds of profound problems. It is uh, demographically in in a bigger hole than the United States. Its population is aging very rapidly. Its workforce is shrinking. It is extraordinarily indebted in the private sector. And that debt is acting as a, a, a growing constraint on growth. Its growth rate is clearly going to come down steeply. It was already doing that before COVID struck. And I would say the biggest problem that we face is not China's strength, but its weakness and the things that it will do, the things the Chinese Communist Party will do for fear of losing power. It's not really when your rival is super confident that you need to worry. It's when your your rival feels insecure and is worried that its grip on power at home may be crumbling. That's when uh non-democratic states are most likely to take strategic risks and part of the point i make in doom is that you know wars are just about as bad as pandemics when it comes to killing a lot of people we haven't seen a really big war for a long long time now but a war with china would clearly be a very big war that as jim Stavridis argues in his book would escalate to, to nuclear conflict very probably so we need to think harder than we're thinking about the nature of the chinese challenge To recognize that it's partly their weaknesses that make them insecure and increasingly encourage Xi Jinping to take geopolitical risk. He knows the legitimacy of the regime, of the one-party state, can no longer be based on double-digit growth. Those days are gone. And he knows that nationalism is about the most effective card that he has to play instead. And that is why he keeps saying The ultimate goal of his premiership or his presidency uh, is to bring Taiwan back into the fold, and that means extinguishing a functionally independent democracy. Uh, We don't have a good answer to that if it happens. We aren't actually in a position to deter China from making a drastic move, an invasion or at least a a blockade of Taiwan. We had credibility in the 1990s because we had massive military superiority. We no longer have that because our aircraft carriers can be sunk by Chinese land-based missiles. And that that is really the basic flaw in the U.S. position today. We have a commitment to Taiwan. It is ambiguous, but it's nevertheless there. I just don't think it's credible.
1: Now, I want to turn to the chum, Neil, because we've got to get people to buy doom. And, and chum is those bits of knowledge that people say, I didn't know that. I've got to read this book because there's a lot of it. And I want to assure the listeners to the interview with you, Hewitt, on every page, there is a surprise. You know, I, I, I'm pretty well read. I had never heard of Cut Alamara. I never, and I saw it and I said, what's he talking about? I know about the psalm, but what's the Cut Alamara? And I go back to the first page of your book, the very first line. Never in our lifetimes, it seems, has there been greater uncertainty about the future and greater ignorance of the past. Now, my ignorance of Cut Alamara is demonstrative of that. Why are we so—and I'm, by the way, probably in the 1% of information acquisition— why are we so ignorant of the past with so many great historians running around? Well, Kat Alamara, just for your <laughs> listeners' edification, was one of those many military
0: disasters that Britain suffered in. World War one it just happened to happen in Iraq, in Mesopotamia, and uh, therefore it doesn't get quite the attention of the Somme or even Gallipoli. Uh, so the point, I think, is that we no longer really teach history uh, in a way that uh, that is effective in terms of, of, of educating uh, the average citizen about his country's past and, and the world's past. And that is, I think, because both at universities and at schools, history has been hijacked by yes. a kind of woke work ideology. And so kids are taught basically two things about American history. One, slavery was wicked, and two, civil rights uh, was great, and that's it. And they don't really get a whole lot else as far as I can see. Uh, and so I think we have allowed history uh, as a as a fundamental part of how we educate our citizens uh, to be hijacked ideologically. I think if you pass the citizenship test, as I had to back in 2018, uh, as a legal immigrant, you're, you're, you're going to know more American history than, than native-born Americans going through our, our public school system. So I think that's part of the answer. I think there's also a tendency for history to be downgraded as a, a tool of policymaking. Relatively few people in government have studied history. They might have studied law. They might have studied uh, economics. There's lots of that around. Uh, Increasingly at the university I'm based at Stanford, computer science rules the roost. And so you end up with an elite that is uh, very well versed in in economics or computer science, but historically completely ignorant. And that's one of the things that I've learned in the last 10 years, that, that the U.S. has a history deficit. It's almost the United States of Amnesia and policy gets made by successive administration with a kind of wild disregard for uh, past experience, uh, including American experience, but, but also including the experience of other countries, which means that we, we kind of make very obvious mistakes again and again and again. And the most obvious one I can think of is that we always are telling our adversaries when we're leaving. Um, and that pattern of announcing departure, which really dates from Vietnam. Has repeated itself again and again and it's happening again in afghanistan we we announced that we're going and not surprisingly the very people that we've been trying to defeat uh are pretty quickly in control again i mean that's just one of many examples i could give but i would say we've also been extremely bad at learning uh from the history of pandemics so the point of doom is to say look we're going to get disasters. Disasters can't be abolished, nor can they be predicted. And they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. If you want to focus on climate change, fine. That is certainly something to worry about. But there are about a dozen other things that we should be just as worried about that we're not thinking about. The lesson of history is that you never get the disaster that you're
1: expecting. You'll be, you'll be surprised by some other form of disaster. And that's yeah, mine- the point of the book. In my notes I wrote at the end of Doom that you prove that there are not cycles. You dispatch every cyclical theory of history. But I walked history's a cookbook. You just gotta go back and find the right recipes to study for the for the uh, ingredients that you are presented with. For example, Pliny the Elder. I've got a message from Pliny the Elder. Don't row towards the volcano. I didn't know that. <laughs> until uh, Don't go. Uh, people have to go. But I also did not know anything about Peter Turchin. And it seems to me you think he's the best of the, if I'll call him the cyclist, or maybe Mr. Shin in Korea, that information yeah. processing. Are they the best of the cycle of history, people?
0: I think so. I mean, look, people have wanted the, to be cycles of history almost since history began to be written in ancient times, because wouldn't it be great if, if history was as predictable as the seasons or the ages of man, uh, we would kind of know what was coming. And this is such an attractive idea that, that you get these f- fashions for cyclical theories. Uh, I've, I've been interested in this for a long time because I'm very sceptical about the idea that history moves in cycles. And, and when people tell me, oh, it's the fourth turning, uh, which is, uh the, 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 one of the most popular cyclical theories of, of our time or they're reading ray dahlia who says that we're in the new debt super cycle my response is oh really history is is cyclical um so tell me what's going to happen next and we'll see the truth is that the best cyclical historian at the moment is a man named peter Kirchin. if this is something that interests you i highly recommend his work which is a great deal more rigorous uh, than the and Howe book on uh, the fourth turning. But in the end, it's impossible in my view for history to be cyclical because disasters happen in this totally random and unpredictable way, and, and they shape history. Turchin predicted, to give him his credit, that there would be a spike of violence and social disorder in America in 2020. And he predicted this quite a few years ago. but The reason that happened was that a pandemic struck, and there was nothing in his model that said there would be a pandemic in 2020. Pandemics, wars, earthquakes, massive volcanic eruptions, financial crises, revolutions, these things don't happen in any discernible pattern. Uh, They're either randomly distributed or they follow a so-called power law. You can't attach a probability to them beforehand and they therefore cannot be a cycle of history. I know it's terrible news because it makes life a lot harder to deal with. We're living under very high levels of uncertainty, uh, and we just don't know when we're next going to get whacked. But that's the human condition. That's the reality of history. And if you tell yourself that you've got a model that predicts that 50 years from now, the earth will have uh, warmed by a certain number of degrees and all of these things will happen, you're bound to be disappointed. That's just not what history does. It's a process that's too complex to model. And as climate change is the disaster that people spend most time talking about, They were talking about it even as a pandemic was beginning. I'm here to say, yeah, I take that seriously, and I think it's a problem. Uh, Heaven knows California periodically bursts into flames. But if there were a massive volcanic eruption on the scale of, say, Tambora in 1815, or the great volcanoes of the 1100s and 1200s, we went back to the geological activity of medieval times in this world. We would very quickly be talking about global cooling. It It would change the game drastically, and make our conversations about man-made climate change suddenly seem rather redundant.
1: I also want to compliment your discussion of bias. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Bob Seawright, an investor, and many investors are very good at this, who tries to educate people in his Better Letter every week about bias. And we are all overly influenced by our biases. Do you think as a historian... You are influenced by the great shelf of books you've already written. Back to your dissertation on the v Republic. Is there some internal need to be consistent across that bookshelf, which is as impressive as anyone's bookshelf that I'm aware of, but does it weigh on you as you worked on Doom? Do you have to kind of thread through what you got right and what you got wrong and correct and edit in the way that George Orwell's Ministry of Information did?
0: I think the most important thing you can do as a a writer is argue with yourself and uh, and acknowledge when you've got things wrong. Many public intellectuals find this impossible because they want to claim always to be right. Yes. Let me give you an example. I I, I wrote a book called The Ascent of Money, which I think was spot on about there being a, a financial crisis in 2008. But subsequently, I was wrong about what would happen next. And I worried in 2010 more than I needed to about inflation, and I thought that interest rates would rise much faster than they did. And publicly, I have acknowledged that on that issue, uh, Paul Krugman, a man I dislike intensely, was right, and I was wrong. And I've tried to figure out uh, what it was that led me to that error. And the question, of course, today is, will this be different? It's very interesting to me that when we talk about the economic consequences of the pandemic, it's Larry Summers who says we're now engaged in fiscal overkill and we're going to overheat the economy because Larry Summers was one of those who correctly argued that we had a problem of stagnation after the financial crisis. So I hope that I'm as far as possible honest in owning the things I get wrong. And when I'm writing a book, the, the objective is not to say Look how right my previous books were, but rather to learn new things. I didn't fully understand in my early work how networks operated. When I wrote The Square and the Tower, I underestimated the danger of a biological contagion and spent too much of that book talking about online contagion. So I hope anybody who reads my books is reading the work of somebody who's self-critical and trying to learn. I mean, I, I really try to educate myself each time I write. And to learn and learn something new so the discussion of biases that you mentioned they use an attempt to kind of survey all the ways in which we're bad at thinking about risk and uncertainty uh and this is very important for investors it's a big part of behavioral finance these days but let's face it if you're thinking about any policy problem or trying to understand history you need to start with the fact that the human brain is not brilliant at, at doing statistics and therefore we have all kinds of problems a couple of my favorites are cognitive dissonance uh, and category errors and, and I, you know i've experienced cognitive dissonance i talk about it at the beginning of the book back at the beginning of the pandemic i was pretty worried on the other hand it took me until the end of february to stop traveling even though i suspected as i began to cough more and more that i might have the new virus I kind of felt embarrassed about wearing a mask on a plane in, in February of 2020. So cognitive dissonance is something that I've experienced and I'm, I'm willing to admit to. And I hope that at least gives the reader a sense that, that the author has has good faith and good intent.
1: It does. And I, and by the way, I think confirmation bias is my own greatest devil. So I fight with it the most. But confirmation bias, you know, Nancy Pelosi going to Chinatown and saying, come on down to Chinatown. That was confirmation bias. She did that in, I think, March. Uh, confirmation right. bias is everywhere. One of the great quotes in Doom comes from Lawrence Summers, who you just mentioned, who you call the closest to Keynes that the other Cambridges produced. The dollar cannot be you can't replace something with nothing. Europe's a museum, Japan's a nursing home, China's a jail, and Bitcoin is an experiment. Boy, is that true. But it's also a false sense of security about the dollar, isn't it? That's what I want to believe. That's the confirmation bias. I want to believe that. And when I had a chance to ask Mark Zuckerberg, I asked him about Libra becoming a a reserve currency. Yesterday, Amazon floated bonds that were only the, the narrowest margin between the government rate of return and a private bond ever issued was yesterday with Amazon bond offering. Is Amazon stock going to be the new reserve currency? Is the dollar really guaranteed? Well, this is
0: a key question for any superpower or empire. You know, is your currency ultimately going to become uh, much weaker? Because as long as the dollar is the number one currency for trade international reserves, the United States has a tremendous capacity to, to borrow money. The rest of the world will essentially except it's, it's dead. No, not only that, but the U.S. also has a superpower called financial sanctions, which it only discovered after 9-11. Now, I think Larry Summers' aphorism that there's really nothing to replace the dollar is brilliant. But as you say, it's a little bit too comforting. Uh, and a couple of points that I make in Doom are worth, are worth pondering. The first is that in, in many ways, the U.S. is falling behind in terms of financial technology. We don't really have a particularly up-to-date system of paying one another. Uh, some of us are still writing checks uh, and waiting days for funds to clear. And this looks pretty stone age by comparison with the way that payments happen, not only in China, but in much of the rest of the world, where new kinds of banking and, and payment online institutions are, are flourishing. So I worry that we're, we're falling behind. We dominate the fiat currency system. But that's a 1970s legacy system, along with SWIFT and credit cards, that is, I think, being replaced by new forms of of online payment. Uh, The second point I think is really important, and it's, it's one that Peter Thiel made recently. If you look at the popularity and rising price of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies, they're telling you that crypto is going from being an experiment to something more than that. And the adoption, uh, increasing adoption by institutions and other investors of Bitcoin tells you that Larry's point that Bitcoin's just an experiment might have been true when he said it, which I think was in 2019, but it looks a lot less true in 2021. And that process of adoption uh, shows no sign of, of slackening. My expectation is uh, not that Bitcoin becomes a means of payment, but that it becomes digital gold. And basically, most investors have some in their portfolio. If that's the case, the price should be closer to uh, $75,000 of Bitcoin. So, yeah, I think the shifts are happening. The great tectonic plates of financial history are moving, and that the US dollar is not going to occupy the place that it currently occupies in 10 years' time. Because I think the US is overplaying its hand. You look at the monetary aggregates, the, the growth rates have been. Unprecedented in peacetime since the crisis began. And then you look at the debt numbers, and they're eye-watering. The debt is on a trajectory to be where Britain's debt was uh, at the end of World War II in a matter of a few decades, unless we radically alter fiscal policy. So the US is doing everything that you would expect an empire to do that wanted to get itself into difficulties, both fiscal and monetary.
1: Now, I, I, I want to close with two key things, since we'll be out of time in nine minutes, Neil Ferguson, and thank you for the time. Doom is a wonderful book. But the the heaviest sentence in the book is on page 193. You're talking about the origins of World War I, at least from the British side. They therefore went to war to keep the Tories out. The liberal government went to war to keep the Tories out, meaning the war's origin was political in Britain, and then throughout the book is a continued reflection on the politicization of everything in America. Will we now, henceforth, respond to everything based on red and blue? Well, that I think is one of the things that distinguishes this America from the America
0: of the 1950s. A, a successful vaccine was not a partisan issue in 1950s America. Actually, Americans in the 50s prided themselves on leading the world in vaccination. And one of the heroes of the book is a Montana. Scientist named Morris Hillman, who probably invented more vaccines than any person in history, including a vaccine for the 1957 Asian flu. So I think we've made a terrible mistake in thinking that everything is political, whether it's masks, vaccines, or, or remedies for, for COVID. And that that means that we're incapable of having a rational debate on issues of public health. Uh, that seems like a new thing. I, I don't recognize that in the America of of the the 20th century, even although on many issues there was political division, not least on the issue of communism, uh, and often very deep political division, there were certain issues that were regarded as non-political. And that, I think, is a a really important shift that's happened. I think the internet has propelled that. Uh, But one reason I subtitled Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is to make a very fundamental point that most disasters are political in nature, even if they look like natural disasters, it's political mistakes that lead to excess mortality when a new pathogen gets out. Taiwan is right next door to the people in the of China. The number of people who have died from COVID in Taiwan is, I think, 12. 12. Not 12,000, 12. And that is because when this disaster began, they very quickly ramped up testing created a contact tracing system, and isolated infected people and protected the vulnerable. And we could have done that, but we didn't. And the question is, why did we fail? When, when we could have, we have the technology to do all that the Taiwanese and the South Koreans did. So that was really the motivation for writing Doom, because I don't think the next disaster necessarily will be a pandemic, but I fear that whatever it is, we'll kind of flunk it in the same way.
1: Last question. You just led me. You gave me the perfect bridge. Yesterday, I was talking about Doom with Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the best-read individuals I know in the world. And he's reading Doom, and he he brought up Taiwan. He said, you know, I would ask, Neil, wh- how could we possibly be like Taiwan? We're not Taiwan. We can't do what Taiwan did. We can't undo being America. And you point out, big tech even walked away from tracking because of, t- of the liability issues their lawyers made. There's just no way to be Taiwan in the United States. And that was his question for you. How, how could we become Taiwan without losing what we are, a free country? Well, here's the thing.
0: I'll give you a choice because we had this choice last year. And I'll give it to your friend as well. You can have a contact tracing app, which carefully makes sure that your data don't become used for any purpose other than contact tracing. Or you can be under house arrest with a shelter-in-place order that confines you to your home. Which is the freer society? Taiwan is a democracy. has the rule of law and a free press. And when I was last there, I was impressed by the vitality of that democracy. It's not Hong Kong, by the way. Taiwan is a full-fledged democracy. And, uh, and we need to learn from it because they have an approach to digital uh, empowerment of citizens that I find hugely impressive. Audrey Tang, the Minister for uh, Digital Affairs, has, has revolutionized Taiwan's government. And her mantra is always, Technology should empower the citizen, not the state. We need to learn that lesson because it cannot be the hallmark of a free society that people opt to, to have lockdowns rather than to have contact tracing apps. I mean, if you just look at the Blavatnik School's interesting measure of stringency of restrictions over the last year and a half, Taiwan has the least stringent restrictions on individual life, the least. And we have among the highest, at least in states like New York and California. So we tell ourselves, oh, we can't do that. We're a free society. And then we do, we do things that, that Taiwanese people would regard as insane. Uh, and, and the lockdowns have many, many insane features to them. So we don't have time to get into that debate. But what kind of a free society, just to give you a Californian example, not only locks people in their homes but says you can't go to the public park or the beach, That was nuts, because it was obvious you couldn't really get COVID outdoors. It was obvious over a year ago, looking at the data from China and Europe. And yet we did that. So I think we have a delusion. We think we're the great spear carriers for liberty. But I don't think we are anymore. I think we've drifted into a rather unfree state of mind, especially on the coast.
1: Interesting response. And we need to
0: wake up. We need to wake up and realize that freedom is not that easy. You have to fight for it. And you have to use technology to enable it. And that's what we failed to do.
1: A great answer. Bonus question. How long? This is just a personal question. I'm so in awe that you read Doom. I've only read two of my books because it's such a pain in the neck and it's hard. (laughs) How long did you take to read Doom? Because it's beautifully read, and I didn't realize until I heard you talk that it was you. How long did it take?
0: It's about a week, although I spaced it out because I had other things to do. So you have to imagine spending five or six days of your life in a tiny little soundproof box. In my case, it was in in Bozeman, Montana. Shout out to the uh, the wonderful uh, editor who had to sit through my many fluffs and, and uh, retakes. But yeah, it's kind of strange to have to read your own book. I've, I've learned something, uh, Hugh, which is you should you should definitely do it before you publish it because there are always mistakes that you only spot when you read something aloud, uh, and uh, and it's maddening if you do it if
1: you do it after you've gone to
0: press. <laughs> uh, I mean. That's, Not, that's that's true. That's a really important
1: lesson. It happened to me. I read, uh, I read my book on Mitt Romney after it had gone to press, and I started the Korean War two years late because of a typo, and I didn't see it until I read it. And then you know it's on the first page. Christopher Hitchens pointed it out to me. Uh, I hope authors, Doom is on we the best. <laughs> authors
0: have these scars? We know where they start
1: here. <laughs> I hope this goes to the top of bestseller lists. I hope that people read it and learn from it, and I hope you'll come back, uh, Neil Ferguson. Terrific work, Doom. The Politics of Catastrophe. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks so much, Hugh. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.